1: And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks
0: for tuning in. Got a great show to eat for you today. Pete is the uh, my guest, and I, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to him. It's um, less about leadership lessons, but it is kind of a reflection of the last 10-year you know, anniversary of the Iraq War. And, uh, and uh, Pete is doing a lot of great work with Concerned Veterans of America. This show is brought to you by Audible.com. You can go there right now and... Uh, Go to my website, doseofleadership.com audible. You can also click on many of the banner links you see at my website. You can download a free audiobook. There's tons of them, hundreds of thousands of books you can download for free. You can sign up for 30 days for free, no obligation. You can look around at all the titles, all the resources they have. You can download an audiobook to your smartphone, make it smarter, make it easier for you to catch up on all your reading. You can do it while you're walking, exercising, driving to work, which is what I do. To catch up and get uh, spooled up on all these interviews that I do with all these great guests. Anyway, doseofleadership.com com slash audible. Anyway, enjoy the show and uh, continue to give me the feedback. I love hearing from all of you out there. Please also go to iTunes and make sure you're subscribing to the podcast. You know, go to iTunes and when you find Dose of Leadership, make sure you put subscribe now. That way, all these episodes will get sent to your iPhone, your iPod, or your computer automatically, and it also will help with my rankings and the visibility in iTunes. Again, thanks for all your support and enjoy the interview. Well, I'm so excited to have on my show today Pete Hegseth. He is the CEO. He serves as the Chief Executive Officer for Concerned Veterans for America, overseeing all areas of the organization and driving the overall messaging and strategic direction. Prior to uh, joining CVA, Hegseth was the Executive Director for Vets for Freedom, and that was from 2007 to 2011, and, and with his leadership there, he grew that organization to over 95,000 members. He was an infantry officer in the Army National Guard. He's re- recently returned from a deployment to Afghanistan, where he was an instructor at the counterinsurgency training center in Kabul. Pete previously served in Iraq with the 3rd Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, and that was from 2005 to 2006, and he was serving as an infantry platoon leader in Baghdad in 2005. ...as a civil military operations officer in Samara in 2006. He also served in Guantanamo Bay for a year with his National Guard unit... ...and he holds two Bronze Stars and a Combat Infantry Man's Badge... ...for his time in Iraq and Afghanistan. You can see him frequently on TV and radio and hear him on radio. He's made hundreds of television television appearances on Fox, CNN, MSNBC. He also has columns. They've appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post... ...the New York Post, and he's a regular contributor to National Review Online military.com. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today?
2: Thank you very much for having me. I'm doing well. Appreciate
0: it. Well, you know, I came across uh, what really struck me and why I wanted to bring you on the show. You know, we're 10 years uh, since the beginning of the Iraq War, and you wrote a pretty big, and you know, I really struck a chord with me, the op-ed in National Review called Legacy of Resolve. And uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that and uh, kind of what struck your passion? And we'll certainly talk about concerned veterans and, and why and uh, why you're so passionate about that organization as well.
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's amazing to think that it's been 10 years since the Iraq war was launched, and for those of of my generation and our generation, that's certainly a conflict and a time period that dominated a big part of our lives. And so to to think we're already 10 years down the line and have an opportunity to reflect back, uh, it was frankly an emotional moment for me. I didn't anticipate it, but as I sat down to write that piece and really think through uh, what what the war meant, what the, what the ramifications were, what did it tell us about who we are as a country and, and, mm-hmm. and what we accomplished or didn't accomplish on the battlefield. I, I, I got to thinking about it I just thought, you know what what I learned, what our generation learned was resolve. Uh, it's a difficult war, not popular. Uh, some people agree with the premise, some don't. You know, it, there's so many complexities to the Iraq War. Uh, but when you step back from it, you've got a generation of warriors who served there, who who did everything they could on the ground, who frankly it wasn't working in two thousand five and two thousand six and the war was headed in the wrong direction. And then there was this sort of sea change where there was you know the president announced the surge, Petraeus was put in charge, more troops were sent, new counterinsurgency strategy, and we kind of doubled down at a critical moment when the enemy had the upper hand and we fought. And while the nation debated here at home and while there was dissent and you know we had members of, of the Senate saying the war was lost and, you know, we were telling our commander-general, betray us, uh, the guys on the ground and guys and gals in the ground in Baghdad and Iraq kept fighting. And they kept fighting in the face of all of that, and they frankly turned the tide of that war and, 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 and I think, understand that with the right strategy, things can be accomplished, big things can be accomplished. And I, I was proud to both serve there, but also to do a small, be part of a small role here at home to shore up the perception of the war, to shore up political will, in many ways, in difficult wars, especially for republics and democracies, it's the domestic political will that is our weak spot. And I, I acknowledge that and recognize that. So we tried to do everything we could to shore that up, demonstrate the resolve, that we're fighting, uh, like I said, in the peace, fighting like hell over there, and then we demand the same political courage from our leaders at home. And we did see that from some. And uh, I'm proud of what was accomplished on the ground. I wish it had been followed through differently. But I do believe the resolve is legacy, and I uh, want to make sure people are reminded of that
0: yeah, I think when people look back and they'll and they'll' we'll look at this chapter in history and it is amazing it 's been ten years. I think you know one of the the passions and the pursuit or, or one of the missions of this podcast is the pursuit of the truth and common sense and i think it's it 's worth remembering that when you look back at the beginning of the ten years. And, uh, and I am political war weary. I mean, I got to admit, I, I'm a I was a political junkie, but this last year, I've really kind of pulled myself away from it again to kind of get back to the pursuit of the truth and and much what concerned vets are doing or what your mission is doing is is trying to remind people and remember some of the truth about it because it gets diluted when you just kind of your focus is just MSNBC Fox and CNN and i think it's worth yeah. remembering like you say and you, and you talk about it in your in your op-ed that there was tremendous bipartisan support at the beginning of the war and it's amazing how quickly it shifted for i'm sure for political purposes and gain but talk about that remember in the beginning and i think somewhere i heard some audio or maybe it was on the radio where i heard in uh, in that interview with you did with Mancow where they were playing the audio clips of all of the political people talking about this absolute support and the and the backing you it's just it 's astonishing, and you forget that when when you hear that tape
2: well, you do, and, and that 's why it's important to reengage on anniversaries of wars like this to remind people because narratives get political narratives get written, which become sort of the history and the facts, which are very disconnected from what actually happened. I mean there was a very bipartisan view before the war, and even the international view from the u n and, and a number of other countries that Saddam hussein was Pursuing whether the mass destruction had to be stopped, that he was a he was a dangerous dictator in a new world where where we had seen on nine eleven the results of of what uh, what what terrorists or jihadists were capable and willing to do. Uh, we couldn't we couldn't allow a guy like that who might share you know support those causes or harbor those types of people and And when you listen to the audio clips of Democrats and Republicans, that feeling was was deep and wide. Uh, I don't mean there wasn't controversy, there certainly was, and there were people, there were voices out there saying uh, that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing, and certainly the aftermath of weapons of mass destruction and other things added to that sentiment. But but we forget uh, how how close we were to 9-11, how much that impacted us, how much that reminded us of, of the dangerous world we live in, and the president was acting based on that premise and belief that it was a new threat that had to be confronted. Uh, so we can have our beliefs in, uh, about was the war worth it, not worth it. Uh, but I don't think we should divorce those from facts in the, at, uh, at the time or the beliefs at the time, perspectives at the time, about about the Iraq war. I mean, and then we should step back and look at what was actually, we I mean, can take it piece by piece and look at aspects of the war and pull out you know, what was good, what was bad, what worked, what didn't, and I think draw the appropriate lessons. But so often it gets politicized. So often we get caught up in the cycle. And I was frustrated with the coverage of the 10-year anniversary, too. It was all, was it worth it? Was the human cost worth it? Was the cost worth it? And those are important questions to learn from. And I certainly learned a lot from that about support and, and influence in the next conflict we get involved in. Uh, but I think it's worth just reflecting getting the facts right and reminding ourselves that uh, there are a lot of folks who sacrificed a heck of a lot on a foreign battlefield for our freedom.
0: Yeah, great point, and I think it's too true. And, and I, again, I don't... I'm with you. I'm less concerned about the debate if it was right or wrong to go. I mean, we went. And the thing that I always like to highlight and I'm always proud of and, and it always amazes me is that, you know, because of the the, the leadership style that our present-day military has and it's been around for a long time, I think the courage, the adaptability, the flexibility, those are the things that always amazes me. You know, regardless of what the political will is or the political fight is back home, when you're actually there and you talk to the folks that were there – it is amazing to me at, at the flexibility, the adaptability that, that um, is present even today in today's military. Would you agree with that?
2: That's a great point. It's a great point. I mean because as much as the d- domestic political debate affects the warrior, it does. I mean it, it, you, you hear what Congress and the president are saying. You understand if sentiment is shifting one way or another, and it's inevitably going to affect some of your feelings – uh toward the, the the war overall. But you know what? Ultimately the, the soldiers and Marines head is down and they're ch- they're charging ahead on their mission, their given mission. Not just charging blindly, but as you said, with flexibility, adaptability, with courage, with intelligence, uh understanding a complex environment that, that you know took us a long time to figure out. But the the military we we have coming out of these wars, I really push back that it's you know war weary and broken. No, it's, it is battle-tested and as smart and as adaptable and flexible as it's ever been. And, you know, part of what I'd like to make sure our military does is is, is internalize the lessons that we learn to make sure that, you know, we've got a steeper learning curve next time on whatever that next conflict is and whatever form it takes. Uh, but we, we've got to remember uh, what was done and in those places, regardless of the political debate, because it was nothing short of, of courageous and incredible.
0: I agree with you. You know, and I think going over some of the numbers too and i think it's important for people to remember and put it in perspective i'd kind of forgotten you know you get you, even in as much as i being a former marine and i'm passionate about what happens over there mm-hmm. you know a, a million and a half people served over there in those 10 years a million and a half that's a lot yeah. and out of that million and a half how many what how many deaths were there 45 yeah, 40, 40,
2: 4400 4400 plus and then 33,000 wounded and then we then there's the names we never hear or think about, which are the contractors. And I think I wrote a piece about a thousand U.S. civilian contractors yeah. also gave mm-hmm. uh, their lives. And it was a, it was a was a big. I mean, there's undoubtedly a big sacrifice, and and something we we must always seek to remember. Uh, but at the same time, a million and a half Americans, while a big number, it's actually is also a very small percentage of the population. It's true. Uh, so it is it is a conflict where you know a lot of people fought really hard, and I think part of the reason opinion is so mixed or uninformed or dispassionate in a sense is that so few people were related to the actual conflict and it was it was uh, very disconnected from the day-to-day lives of most Americans.
0: You know, I hate to generalize, but it seems like I've ran into a couple of vets that and, and I knew a lot of my peers um, were in the first part of the war and you um, being a little bit younger than myself, you kind of went into the second half of it. And I know, I know when talking to a lot of the folks that were in the first half, they seem a little more cynical. than and it seems like on, the vets that I run into on the second half are a little more optimistic. And I hate to be general because everybody's yeah. war is a little different. I mean, it's, it's, it's unique for everybody. But is there a sense from that? I mean, you were there and you saw it firsthand. What is your take on that?
2: There is a little bit of that, yeah. I mean, and this is totally unscientific, but I've been in the veterans community, veterans space for quite some time. And most of the people that... Um, came out of the war and became anti-war activists uh, were from that early area or early era oh three oh four. 304 when there's no doubt guys were going in uh, without sufficient equipment and, and they an ill uh, a uh, ill-defined mission and we were denying that insurgency was forming so there were a lot of things to be cynical about um, and when I was there 2005 to 2006 it was kind of that inflection point where a lot of the worst manifestations of the early part of the war were coming. Uh, to the manifest themselves and then you uh, I was in Samar when the Golden Mosque was bombed literally that triggered a lot of the sectarian violence around the country so we saw it start spinning out of control and then I, I had the chance to go back twice in 2008 as an embedded reporter with National Review and went back to where I had served in both Baghdad and Samara and was able to see you know, firsthand walking streets that we literally couldn't drive uh, you know two years ago And because the population had flipped, the strategy had been successful, the surge had had the desired impact, the the people on the ground had realized that they didn't want to embrace what Al-Qaeda was selling or or the other radical elements were selling. So you see it firsthand, you see the transformation, and it it, it, it strips away a lot of the cynicism that you have when you're there and you see it not working. Um, So the point is well taken. It is obviously an overgeneralization. There are a lot of people who served early on in the war and remain steadfast supporters. One of them is Wade circle who, who founded Vets for Freedom, uh, but but at the same time, a lot of mistakes made there translated into opposition here. That over time, I think, became disconnected from the new realities in Iraq. Not all of which were good; a lot of them were bad. But events can change, and that's you know what you're talking about with flexibility and adaptability. What I'm talking about with resolve. If you approach it the right way, what I saw the American military able to accomplish was nothing short of of, of, of staggering, uh, which which is something also we need to remember, and, and you, you see that difference between the, the generations. Same fight, same war, totally different perspectives based on where you were and what
0: you saw. Where, do, where is Iraq today? What do you think? I mean, to me, from and um, I'm so far removed from it, but my fear uh-huh. is my fear is that we celebrate, and there seems to have been the last couple of years, or at least the last year, this political victory. You know, saying we're done, and no one's really thinking about it, and. And, and In what was it last week? I saw, of all people, Bill, Bill Maher, which I am not a huge fan of, and he um, readily admitted on his show that he thought, "Wow, you know, maybe you know, Iraq is a country now. Maybe, maybe it was worth it going there." I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said. I don't. Know. Did you see? Mm-hmm. That? Did you see that comment that he made? I did. You
2: that. I did. see that. And and uh, it's it's a really interesting thing to think about. I. I it, in one sense, I you know obviously I appreciate any decent word that Bill Maher would say about the Iraq War, and it certainly is an indicator of a change. And if you look at Iraq, vis-a-vis some of these countries that are in the midst of turmoil during what some dubbed the Arab Spring or the Arab Nightmare or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, you look at Iraq, and it's a different, it's in a different state. At the same time, you also look at look at recent news about Iran uh, and Syria and Secretary Kerry being in Iraq talking to Mal- Prime Minister Maliki about preventing Iranian flights from going over Iraqi airspace over to fuel the Assad regime in Syria. And our Secretary of State goes to Baghdad and can't get those, even that type of a concession or agreement because we never finished the Iraq war properly. What I said in the piece is, you know, we won the war, but we lost the peace. And we we never, we, we, this president and this administration was so wet at ending the war. It was never about, you know, um, consolidating the gains that we made, tough, hard-fought gains we made into a status-of-forces agreement or a long-term agreement, where we at least maintain a presence and maintain influence to make sure that, you know, the post-American future in Iraq is one where there's a stable and good relationship between our two countries. This administration has not valued that, and because of it, we can't even get a simple, uh, you know, a simple thing like preventing more weapons going from Iran into Syria to fuel that uh, that civil war that's going on over there. So I, it, for, I know for events of our generation, it's pretty frustrating to watch um, both a, a, a piece sort of get, slip away because we weren't focused on it, but I also look at Iraq today and say, hey, there's hope for that country. It's, it's tough. There's a lot of problems there, political problems mostly, um, but it's, uh, you still don't not, no one could tell you, I have no idea if five years on the line what Iraq would look like, but it will tell us a lot about you know, what true impact America really had there.
0: Yeah so tell me a little bit let's you know this podcast is is dedicated to leadership the pursuit of truth common sense how did your experiences um, with the army and being in combat and both before and after how did it shape your leadership did did you um, did, would you consider yourself a leader before and how did your leadership philosophy change the good and the bad what it tell me about your experiences
2: sure I mean it, it of course it fortified me with with Attributes and principles that that you that, that are applicable to leadership, and they, they pounded in, and you know that uh, better than I do. Uh, it, it, it equips you with ways of looking at the world, with organizing, with motivation that you otherwise would have to discover on your own over time through any other number of sources. And I'll tell you, it was, it, but it was primarily my time interact uh, and you know being both a platoon leader and also being a civil-military operations officer, where I was very much, you know, we were kicking down doors and doing the tactical piece. And then I switched into being the liaison with the local government in Samara, and I started to understand the, the connection between the tactical and the strategic, the tactical operational, and strategic, and how they link. And sometimes the strategic will be stay in its realm, and the tactical stays very tactical. And if the two aren't linked or synced, uh, you don't have you don't have much going for you, or you have a lot of misunderstanding and deception about what's really going on. So it, it, it reminded, it taught me two things that I've leveraged, I mean, it taught me a lot of things that I've leveraged since, but two, primary, two primarily, uh, one is just organization. I mean, so much of life is the ability to rapidly organize, identify weaknesses, identify and make facts and assumptions and imply tasks tasks and go out there and build a timeline on a task list that leads to something you want to accomplish that isn't something that is taught a lot of places and so when you get into an organization like a nonprofit, whether it's Vets for Freedom or Concerned Vets for America there isn't a template on how to do it and I lean back time and time again on the organizational leadership skills taught in the military but how to just get stuff done it's not always going to be perfect Uh, but that activity and the movement and the organization has value in and of itself because you're doing things you wouldn't otherwise be doing which you're creating outcomes that open other doors and other opportunities uh, that's one. And then the other piece is the link between the tactical and the strategic. And that has political implications, societal implications. I mean, understanding that what we do on the ground as a grassroots organization, how do I link it to actual impact in Washington if I want to affect courageous change or I want leaders to do something? I can't just hold meetings in Washington. I also can't just do things at the grassroots level. Those have to connect and sync, And creating an organization that can do both is no easy task. But I think over time I've learned a lot about um, organizationally how to do that. But it came back from you know, usually a platoon leader is not thinking on strategic levels, and these wars require that, and my experience required that, and I think that's translated imperfectly, and we certainly haven't done anything, everything perfect, but within, uh, understanding that link has been important in trying to navigate a political world that is oftentimes, political and policy world, that's oftentimes more confusing and more complex and full of more shades of gray than even a counterinsurgency is.
0: Yeah, you know, listening to you and watching what you're doing, I, I I told you I made that conscious effort, especially in the last seven to eight months. I pulled myself as, as a prior political junkie, and I found I wasn't um, providing – I found myself spinning wheels and not – producing anything of value or accomplishing anything of value. And when I started pulling myself away and peeling back the layers and looking at other elements of society, looking at the entrepreneurial side, looking at the people that are doing startups, looking at people who are not even engaged in that political front, it was much more refreshing. And and from my vantage point, I see a very fresh America, a very optimistic America. How do you stay optimistic when your focus tends to be Almost a hundred percent political because it is such a frustrating game I don't know how honestly I don't know how you can you can deal with that and though I know that yeah. if any positive change is going to happen in this country and our society it has to start at Washington at some point but I guess two things well, what do you think yeah. about what do you think about you know my conscious effort to maybe kind of pull away from that am I is that less courageous? And then the second part is, is again, my, what I ask. How do, you, how do you deal with that, and how do you stay positive and motivated about it? Yeah.
2: No, first of all, I don't think it's more or less courageous. I think it's, it's, it's a choice you've got to make in order to affect the most change you can. And, and recognizing within yourself the need to do that is an important step. I mean, whether, whatever you want to call it, a tactical pause, a tactical retreat, uh, perspective, it's important. So you're talking about it in the macro sense and I think you've reaped the benefits of it. I try to do it in the midst of this in a micro sense in that I know I won't think strategically if I don't turn the television off, put my screen down and like focus on, okay, let take myself out of the immediate discussion of what's happening. Where do we want to go? How do we how do we get there? How do we make it happen? And force myself to have that sort of detached, dispassionate assessment of the way forward and what we want to accomplish aside from what is, you know, ticking across the ticker at the bottom of Fox or MSNBC, because if you get so caught up into that, you, you, you get caught up in how am I immediately relevant, how am I immediately inserting myself into a, a mini talking point or a quick quick win, and you're not, you eventually get stuck in the muck and mire. Yeah. And, and it is a pretty quick and easy way to get cynical. And instead, you've got to just sort of know what you're attempting to accomplish, know your space and your niche, and, and find the unique opportunities within it to move forward. And 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 not get caught too much in in the twenty four hour news cycle that we all get caught in. It also helps. I got to tell you to be working in the in the in the veteran space to be working with people who are inherently skeptical, as I am, of the, the of the interests of both political parties. That you've got Republicans trying to do one thing and Democrats trying to do another. And I understand why they're trying to do what they do, but oftentimes they do what they do precisely because they're a Democrat or a Republican, yeah, and not because they have the best interests. Of, a country, of our country in mind. Maybe they do in a sense, but those, their actions manifest themselves differently. So when you're working with and for people who have raised their right hand to defend the Constitution and understand what this country's about, they continually remind you from their perspective and what they believe well, what's most important. You don't get stuck in this political stuff. Remember, this is what it's about. And, and so that does center me and reorient me uh, just in the nature of the work that we do, because it can't just, yeah, we're in the political realm, but if we try to play politics and be political, we, we couldn't succeed. We can't compete with these poli- political animals and operatives that are you know, calculating every single move. We have to be true to what we believe and what we know to be true and put forward credible messengers that are living what they believe and then move the narrative in our direction and, and have a long-term perspective, understanding the need to win at the tactical level and the operational level here and there. So I, I don't take issue at all with, with take, having that perspective. I think it's critically important. And whether you do it on a day to day basis, weekly basis, or for a number of months, I mean, it's something you got
0: to do. Yeah, I think that, uh, and I love your answer. What you said that that is encouraging. But I think that what is so lacking to me, and what drives me crazy, is this lack of courageous authenticity. And the more that I try to hone <clears throat> the message and try to figure the, the reason for the podcast and why I am passionate about it, is and it boils down to this lack of courageous auth- authenticity. Everywhere I look, it just seems so phony baloney, plastic banana. It drives me crazy. And, uh-huh. and, but then when I do it, like I said, when I peel the layers back, when I look at, you know, and that's what I'm, you know, and that's how I found concerned vets. That's how I found, um, all these things, these guests and these amazing entrepreneurs and these startups. And that's what keeps me motivated and keeps me, keeps me excited. But I tell you, I, I am very fearful. Um, the direction of the country and i'm not trying to turn this into a a political talk show but i'm just saying it it scares me and i think there's so many other people that are scared too and i think when i look at myself and say why am i pulling myself back is it because it's so overwhelming and it's all gonna you know as seth godin had said i don't know if you ever follow him he says "Eh, that's all gonna melt eventually anyway (laughs) and i think at some point he's right but um I just hope it's not within our lifetime. I guess that's what I'm concerned about. And so...
2: Yeah, well, you're, you're a conservative veteran for America like me. I mean, at, at, the, at the end of the day, the stance I take, though, is if if, if we don't engage, then who? Then who will?
0: Yeah, great point. And,
2: and I think we, at some point, you got to just, the, the day, it is about the day-to-day fight. It is about, but keeping perspective within that day-to-day fight. Uh, you know, when I mean, you talk about Washington in particular, Washington's about incentives. Uh so many of these members and others don't have you know, they have got incentives to go along with the game, go along with the way things have been done because that's who writes the checks or backs them up or provides the political cover. And from our perspective, we're saying, no, let's let's push it, let's create a different set of incentives. Let's create a set of incentives where it, it win, It's a win for them to be courageous on tough issues. And so we've started by reaching out to vets, members of Congress, mostly post-9-11 vets, the vets of all generations, and sitting down with them in their offices and saying, hey, we're not here to ask for anything. I don't want any money. I don't want a benefit. I don't want a card out. Card out. I want you to fight for the fiscal solvency of my of my nation. I want you to maintain the strongest military in the world. I want you to address this debt and this spending crisis that we have, and all these critical issues that are manifesting themselves. That you have a powerful voice in, and I want to be a partner with you on that. And when you step forward courageously, we're going to have your back. And and again, not because we have, want to carve out or we want anything. We want because we want we want courageous people to start being courageous. And and we don't care what your and you you can. I mean, the re- reaction, the feedback we get is just amazing. There's a thirst for it because no one ever walks in, well, not special, but no one ever walks into offices and says that. They usually say, well, this is, what, this is why what I have is so critically important and I need you to defend it to the detriment of this, and if you do, I'm going to write you a big fat check. Yeah. Instead, we're saying, no, we're a bunch of vets that are behind you because we believe in the future of our nation, and you do too, and if you step out, we're going to back you up and we're going to elevate your voice and make you more significant in the conversation because it behooves us to do so. And it's imperfect. We're, we're figuring it out over time. But I think people are starting to react to it, and we've already seen some changes in the conversation from vets on the Hill and across the country who are like, okay, um, maybe one small part of the cavalry is arriving here that can help us uh, stick our neck out on tough and contentious issues at a difficult time. It's, it's only one piece of the wheel. There's so much more left to be done, but uh, you know, I, I feel like we're starting to make a small dent, and we're just going to keep going at
0: it. You said something that really struck me, and and, and I would agree with you. And in in my wheelhouse, and what I've seen, and when I do my public speaking, and I talk, and I talk about the the courageous authenticity, the and that, and in fact, I end my presentation in talking about courage. And you're right; there is a thirst out there. There's a thirst out there for for leaders to be courageous for, to be courageous in our own personal lives and really understanding what, what courageous means. I think when we hear that word courage, sometimes we think, Oh, it's those larger than life, you know, life or death type scenarios. But being <laughs> courageous is, you know, if there's any act, I mean, if you, do, if you simply do the right thing and you act on your gut and you act on your belief and your in your, your common sense core belief and you act on that regardless of what the policy, the regulation, the process or you know the the pop the the popular will says you're yeah. acting in courage, and that is so lacking in so many aspects of all of our lives, both personal, professional, political. Everywhere you see, there's just this huge vacuum of courageous action, and and they're yeah. little acts. I mean, it, it can be as simple as you saying grace at your meal with your family. You've never done that before. It's it's it can be you know, um, speaking up at, at your board meeting and, and defending what's right. I mean, there's so many aspects of courage and, um, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you think oh, about yeah, that?
2: No, I think that's, I mean, what came, the phrase that came to me to mind when you were talking about that was, I remember the phrase random acts of kindness. It's kind of random acts of courage. It's reminding people that and they're not random because you really got to think them through, but that in a day, it's a really, it's a really important point because I, I think we, we divorce the word courage from, from our daily lives, and we, we assign it to specific moments or heroic acts. And instead, what it takes to do that right thing behind closed doors uh, is, is is no small measure. And, and, but to take the example I was talking about, when we're talking in these Hill offices, they're agreeing with us mm-hmm. about what needs to be done. The courage is when you step outside that office in front of a microphone and say the same thing. Yeah, uh, And you know you're going to take the political heat for it. And we know... The problem is men are not angels, and and the incentive in politics is not for political courage; it's to survive and you know, advance. And so, if we can both induce courage in small doses when we can get it out there, and then otherwise create incentives to do the right thing, maybe it's not immediately acting courageously, but do the right thing. We'll back you up. Still takes some measure of courage to do that, because you're going to take heat from somebody else for doing. You know, you, you don't you don't know you're do, you know you're doing something right when someone's criticizing you for it. And and the problem is politicians don't want to be criticized uh, in, in in that way. So uh, it's a great point, and, I, and I'm glad you're you're pounding that home because each one of us, if we're if we're honest with ourselves, each day has an opportunity to make great choices or not. And, uh, and and at the end of the day, that makes all the difference.
0: Well, what what's next for Concerned Vets? When and, and where can my listeners find you and find out more about Concerned Vets for America?
2: Yeah. Um, you can go to for America, uh, org uh, or on our Facebook page, we've got about 128,000 followers there. It's it's Concerned For America. You just type it into Facebook, and you can link up to volunteer to join our email list. We send out a morning email called the Morning Frago, which has all the critical, you know, what we deem to be the best articles of the day um, from you know, the vet, foreign policy, defense, economic perspective. Uh, and you know, what, what are we doing? We're trying to we are trying to build an organization of veterans advocates, courageous veterans advocates who can be involved in the, in the discussion. But we just fundamentally believe that service doesn't stop when you take off the uniform and that there's a thirst and a need for a group out there that's going to be actively engaged on the issues of the day and is going to organize in a smart, concerted fashion uh, in the field and in Washington to have the impact to leverage to, to, to impact policy discussions, to impact debates, to impact critical things that matter not just to veterans and not just to the military, but to our entire country, acknowledging that our debt is a natural security threat, that our spending is out of control, that uh, you know jobs and unemployment rates are manifestations of certain actions in, in Washington uh, that have been more prevalent, you might say, under this administration than others. And so you, we're trying to move that, advance that conversation down the road in the media in the policy discussion, but more so in, at the grassroots level, guys talking to guys, gals talking to guys, gals, sharing their stories and talking about what it means to serve this country and continue to, and then training them to be advocates, training them to write op-eds, training them to to, uh, to 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 articulate these issues, to pound the pound the pavement when they're when they're passionate about something and affect change. So if if you if you're out there and listening to this, and you're a veteran, or not even a veteran, or military family member, or somebody who just wants to affect change. We'd love to have you jump on board with us. We're not going anywhere. We're, we're building for the long haul, uh, but not building to get cozy. That's an important differentiator. There are a lot of groups that build to get cozy on K Street in Washington. That's not us. Uh, if you want to get cozy, you probably want to go somewhere else. If you want to agitate and work hard and fight on a daily basis on issues facing our country and veterans, then the Concerned Veterans for America would be a home for you.
0: Well, Pete, you're doing some great work. I'm a huge fan um, consider me locked and loaded with you, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. We'll definitely have you back. I'm sure as you got other events and other things coming up, um, you are always got a welcome voice and a welcome, welcome vehicle to um, talk about your stuff. So I'm a huge advocate for you and Concerned Vets for America.
2: Well, Richard, thank you very much for, for this opportunity, for this forum, and, and truly for what you do. In, in you know, we, we can't do it without other people giving us a platform from which to, to, to fight for what we believe. in. so thanks for doing this podcast, for, for, for getting the word out there, not just about this, but about leadership. We need it.
0: Right on, man. Uh, we'll, we'll catch you down the road. All
1: right. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership e-book. A guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.